The surreal scenes of desperate Afghans clinging onto aircrafts at the Kabul airport are now seared into the world's memory. Afghanistan has seen war for decades, but none of them have seen a military takeover of the country so decisive. The speed with which the Taliban swept the country has shocked many. Why did the Afghan army collapse? Did President Ashraf Ghani have to flee? Is this a betrayal by the US administration? And what about the safety of Afghans, particularly women, under Taliban rule? These are some of the many questions people in the country are asking, but there are no easy answers. No one cares about you, but still you're trying to go out because you want to live, because you have hope, because you're a human being and you have the right. This woman lives and works in Kabul. For her own safety, she has asked not to be named. In this episode, we will call her Roya. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. In this episode, we will examine what happened in the crucial hours before Kabul fell to the Taliban, and what's next for the country. Before we start, please subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get the latest episodes. On August 15th, Chinook helicopters hovered over the diplomatic zone in Kabul as the U.S. rushed to destroy sensitive documents and evacuated its staff from Afghanistan. Soon, the Taliban entered the city, having already taken most of the provinces and border crossings. All of this happened in mere days. When Kabul fell, America's longest war came to an abrupt end, leaving ordinary Afghans in freefall. We spoke to Ali Latifi, a journalist in Kabul. He gave us a breakdown of the fearful hours ahead of the Taliban's conquest of the city. For about five or six hours of that day, there was this up and down roller coaster in the city. You know, when I woke up in the morning, because I live above two banks, you know, the, the, the lines to get into the banks were, were just like rows and rows deep of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people trying to get in, uh, waiting outside the bank, waiting outside the door to the bank. Um, the streets were just jam-packed with cars, just just crazy packed with cars. Nobody could move anywhere. If you, if you were trying to get, you know, even two kilometers in a car, it would take you maybe an hour. Yeah, that's how packed the streets were. And then around noon, there came reports that the Taliban had entered the city. And uh, I was walking by the park in the middle of the city and we heard gunshots and everybody's immediate reaction and they said this out loud is the Taliban are here, run. You saw, imagine like a smaller version of Sheikh Zayed Road, you know, that's, that's essentially like the kind of street I was on. You just saw hundreds of people running in either direction, men, women, children, just panicking, running. and. Um, when we got a little further, one of the store owners was like, calm down, nothing happened, it's okay, relax. And then it came out that the that the gunfire was like aerial shots, because for whatever reason, people in this country like that a lot, <laughs> even on that day. Um, so then things kind of calmed down, but as I kept walking, when I went into the other neighborhood, I saw that people were running away again and that stores were shutting and there were rumors online that the Taliban had entered the city, that they were near the zoo, that they were near uh, this, this major roundabout and this uh, major prison on the west side and all of the, so, so that again freaked people out. So again, you saw people just rushing to taxis trying to get home. You saw people, 
going into the stores and buying water and, and rice and flour last minute in case the stores shut. Um, and the stores did shut. Um, and then about an hour or so later, the Taliban released a statement saying, calm down. We're not in the city. We're not going to come into the city until some kind of a settlement is reached. We will stay at the gates of Kabul. The Taliban ruled Afghanistan in the late 1990s. It was a tough time for many Afghans. The group implemented an exceedingly harsh interpretation of Islamic law. Women were barred from schools and offices and were forced to cover all parts of their bodies, including their faces, in public. Then, the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 ousted the militant group from power. But the Taliban never really left the country. They were regrouping away from Kabul in the country's rural landscape and in neighboring Pakistan for years, intermittently launching attacks on Afghan and international troops. Ali Latifi says the fall of Kabul didn't come as a huge shock. It was when the major cities of Herat and Kandahar were overrun by the Taliban that most people lost all hope. It wasn't a total surprise because really, for me personally, what changed everything was when the Taliban took Kandahar and Herat within a matter of hours of each other. And because before that, I remember I, I would be asked by different media outlets, like, oh, the whole country is going to be overrun. Kabul will be taken over. And I would get really upset because they were acting as if the Taliban were already in the attic at the time and in, in the presidential palace at the time. And I actually got really upset. And I kept saying, look, if they haven't managed to take Herat, Kandar, and Lashkargah, you know, um, three of the biggest cities, you know, even though they've been trying very, very uh, diligently um, for a month, a month and a half at that point, I thought it, it's way too early to call for a, a fall of Kabul. Um, and also, I just didn't like this whole idea. It was almost like the world was counting down to it, like as if it was New Year's, you know, like I get it. It's a big news headline and, you know, in our business, Unfortunately, we have to think about those things, but there's just something about the way you ask it that makes it come off really crass, you know? And I, and I felt like constantly being asked about it was also, you know, it was really upsetting because you're trying to maintain as much hope and a positive outlook as possible, even though you know the situation is bad, you know, you don't want to go immediately to, to the absolute worst case scenario. But anyhow... When when Herat and Kandar fell, we were all devastated. Like we were all just, it changed everything. Because, you know, to, to put it into context, taking Herat and Kandar is like taking San Francisco and Chicago. You know, it's like you may not have taken New York and DC yet, but you've taken like these major, major cities, these, these huge trade hubs, these huge economic hubs, these, these historic cities with, with, with all of this culture and ancient history and with millions of people and so much investment and, you know, a lot of development and advancement and reconstruction uh, compared to other places. And at one point, Kandad was the safest city in the country. So that changed the entire game for all of us. You know, after that, we didn't have a positive outlook and everybody was angry because they felt as if enough wasn't done to protect them. You know, I, I talked to 
friends in both cities and they both said the same thing. They were like, they sold us out. They didn't put in any effort. The Taliban say they want to form an inclusive Islamic government, but can they be trusted? We asked Jasmine Bhatia, research fellow at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. So in some ways, they've, they've certainly changed. Um, so for example, they're much more savvy than they were before. You can look at the way that they use social media, uh, the way that they engage in psychological warfare in very sophisticated ways. Um, so they've learned a lot. Um, they're much more decentralized in the way that they approach local communities. They kind of tailor their policies in accordance with local norms a lot more than they used to, and that served them very well. Uh, they've also, if you look at the leadership and some of their statements recently, they've scaled back a lot of their more extreme rhetoric to a large extent. They're taking a lot of care to appear more moderate to the international community. So they're really speaking the language of the donor community, for example, when they talk about women's rights, um, when they talk about wanting to work with uh, NGOs, uh, wanting to have you know social programs and public services. So um, they've repeatedly said they don't want to be internationally isolated, uh, which they were in the 1990s. Um, they've said that they'll respect certain rights. Uh, they'll allow girls education. They uh, concede that women have the right to work. Uh, but we really have to wait and see how this rhetoric is followed up with actions. Uh, so when we look at reports from areas of Afghanistan that they've governed for some time now, uh, this suggests that things have not changed very much. We still see accounts of women being forced out of their jobs, um, some cases of forced marriage, uh, women being forced to wear the burqa. Uh, girls are allowed to go to school, but they're only allowed to have a primary school education. Uh, we also have cases of civil society activists, journalists being intimidated, in some cases physically harmed. Um, so, you know, we see these kind of dual uh, tendencies in the Taliban. And I, I think it's fair to say there's also probably a lot of fragmentation in the Taliban. You probably have more moderate elements as well as more radical elements. And I fear that the radical elements have been empowered by these rapid military victories, um, but we'll simply have to judge and see if they've changed from the 1990s by what they do in practice over the next, uh, the coming weeks and months. On August 17th, the Taliban gave its first press conference, two days after completing their takeover of Afghanistan. The group assured that women will enjoy rights according to Islamic law, but Roya, who we heard from briefly earlier, and many other Afghan women like her are suspicious. Being a woman in Kabul is horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, like, um, it's been two days that Taliban are in Kabul. They have taken completely the control of Kabul city. And I have I have male fr friends, and they are just like, there is no big change in their life, actually. The whole, like, the big change is in women's life, especially women like us, that we worked outside, that we had a strong background, and we stood for ourselves, we spoke our voice. So, yeah, I think it's horrible right now. We are really insecure, especially me, my friends, my family members. Like, it's been two days that Taliban are here in the city, and during two days, I was just absolutely at home. I was just closed. I was just sitting in my room and I said, but eventually today I decided to go outside because um, I used to live alone by myself in Kabul. But uh, on the day that I heard that Taliban is getting the Kabul, so I just left the house and went to one of my relatives' uh, place. 
Uh, and today I just came here back to just collect some of my stuff and go back. So the situation is very bad for women, like uh, especially for women that they have left uh, 20 years back with Taliban. Um, like my family never emigrated. I still have the childhood memory from Taliban. And I think it's coming back. And um, just hearing their name, is, we, we are shaken when we hear their name. And I see like no change in their appearance, their, in their mindset, in their belief system. Uh, I, I don't see any changes. Even I think it's like worse than 20 years back. There is another policy problem, one of the Taliban's global recognition as a legitimate government. Coming to power is one thing. Managing a country, its foreign affairs, and diplomacy is quite another. Jasmine says it depends on a lot of factors, and each country would look at it differently. I think a lot of the international community right now is in a kind of wait-and-see mode. And, uh, and as, I, as I mentioned, a lot of it is going to depend on you know, what the Taliban... Uh, the Taliban's policies and uh, and what they if they if they stick to their kind of more moderate statements, their more moderate commitments. Particularly, I think a huge concern uh, by all Af uh, Afghanistan's neighbors is the presence of uh, terrorist groups and when whether or not that's going to be something that we see in Afghanistan again, um, or if they're going to crack down on it. I think that's the biggest concern, and that's a concern shared uh, by China, by Russia, by the West, um, by India, et cetera. So it was almost everybody uh, that's involved with Afghanistan has that concern. Um, I think the West probably um, will condition recognition on possibly some other elements, um, maybe, for example, um, the rights of women, um, whereas uh, other countries may be maybe less concerned. Uh, China, I think, in the today uh, has indicated that they might be willing uh, to recognize the new government. I think Russia is hanging back a little bit. They have some concerns. Uh, but China and Russia are keeping their embassies uh, in the country for now, whereas Western embassies are pulling out. Um, although the Taliban has said that they, they want Western embassies, they want the UN to stay. So, um, so again, it's, it's, it's to be seen whether or not uh, the Taliban are able to reassure, to present this kind of moderate face um, to the world that grants them recognition. Um, it's something they certainly want. But I will say I'm not sure it's something they're willing to pay any price for. Uh, I think it's not a unipolar world anymore in the way that it was in the 1990s. And if they're able to get recognition from China, from the Gulf, from a few other countries, maybe Western recognition is not as important to them as it used to be. U.S. President Joe Biden conceded that the fall of Kabul had been hard and messy. He blamed the chaos on the failure of Afghans to fight, despite the fact that more than 60,000 Afghan soldiers have been killed over the course of the war. People are asking how, after the U.S. spent nearly $1 trillion on Afghanistan, the Afghan army fell like a house of cards. Back in 1975, at the close of the Vietnam War, press photographers captured an iconic image. It showed people scrambling onto a helicopter on a rooftop in Saigon. After the fall of Kabul, the capital witnessed similar scenes as U.S. forces scrambled aircrafts to evacuate their staff. We asked Jasmine if this was America's second Saigon. So I think there are many parallels between uh, Saigon and what you see in Kabul right now. So, of course, in both cases, uh, the U.S. had funded and trained local forces in one side of a civil war. And shortly after the U.S. withdrew the military, they had trained and supported collapse. 
Uh, it's also true that the withdrawal of U.S. and allied forces is being carried out in very chaotic fashion. So we have the famous photograph of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon uh, being evacuated by helicopter. And now, of course, we see very similar scenes in Kabul airport as we speak. Uh, in both cases, uh, it's a very humiliating departure for the U.S. Uh, but I think it's worth pointing out uh, there are some ways that the conflict is different. So, uh, for example, uh, the conflict in Afghanistan started over the 9-11 attacks. And the U.S. Uh, first defined its mission as a mission against international terrorism, even if uh, that eventually expanded to a nascent building project. And if you listen, for example, to uh, President Biden's remarks today, he still claims that the U.S. still achieved its core objective of degrading the capacity of al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups to carry out attacks. So there's this dimension of uh, transnational terrorism, uh, a direct link between domestic and international security that perhaps wasn't so salient in the Vietnamese war. It is estimated that 550,000 Afghans have been internally displaced by the conflict since the beginning of this year alone. When the Taliban took over on August 15th, thousands marched to the city's main airport to get out. And there were heart-wrenching scenes of Afghans running towards moving U.S. military aircraft, many clinging to the sides and wheel arches, others jostling to get in. At least four people are reported to have fallen from a plane as it took off. Roya says it was people's determination to survive that led many to rush to Kabul airport for a last chance at survival. If you live in condition that we are right now, eventually you will decide to go, no matter what. How you're going to leave the country, it doesn't matter too. Come on, like you're dealing with surviving. Surviving comes first. If you're not able to survive, you will do anything. Even animals, if they, they face that, if they get to know that they're dying, they do anything. And we're human being. We have sense, we have feelings. If you get to know that I'm going to be killed right now, so of course I will, I will search for, no matter what, I will search for all the ways to get out of that place. Could this tragedy, this chaos, have been avoided? Jasmine weighs in. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's plenty of blame uh, to go around, to be honest. Um, I would probably identify uh, three key factors. Uh, so first, I think the main factor, a major factor, is the fact that you know NATO forces were very successful in 2001, 2002 at ousting the Taliban uh, leadership immediately after 9-11. But the Taliban leadership had a safe haven in Pakistan where they could regroup and eventually once again pose a threat. So if that safe haven hadn't existed, uh, if, for example, NATO forces had paid closer attention, uh, if they hadn't been distracted by Iraq, for example, uh, if they'd addressed this threat of the Taliban in the early years of the ISAF mission, it's unlikely the Taliban could have rebounded in the way that they have over the past 20 years. So I think that's one important factor. Uh, secondly, I think um, while the international community has invested a huge amount of resources into Afghanistan, a lot of that investment was lost to corruption. Uh, the Afghan state uh, was extremely corrupt, extremely ineffective. And this corruption was felt at all levels of Afghan society. And that really helped the Taliban because it gave them a narrative of a corrupt government uh, that resonated with a lot of people in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, it also has degraded the ability of the Afghan army to fight. Uh, and so 
recently, we've had a lot of accounts of Afghan soldiers uh, claiming, you know, stories about having their salaries stolen, uh, not being properly resourced, not being uh, properly fed. And that's all had a very damaging effect on morale, which helps explain, you know, this rapid collapse in Afghan forces. And uh, finally, I think uh, there is ultimately a failure of leadership. And I think this is both on the U.S. side. Uh, in orchestrating a, an extremely flawed peace process that undermined the Afghan government, that's given legitimacy to the Taliban uh, without them um, conceding anything in return, and also uh, a failure of leadership by the Afghan government. Uh, and this is particularly President Ghani and his advisors, uh, who really failed to understand the scale of the threat they were facing from the Taliban uh, to mount a coherent strategy against it, uh, there are many soldiers in the Afghan National Army who are able and willing to fight. They would have done so uh, if they'd had leadership. Uh, it was their leaders that capitulated so quickly. And as we've seen, many, including Ghani, have simply fled the country. So if the army sees that their leaders aren't willing to fight, you know, it's understandable that they choose not to put their lives on the line as well. About 72 hours after the Taliban took over, daily life in Kabul is gradually resuming. Many shops and businesses have opened. Ali Latifi says that amidst this new reality, there are some who are challenging the Taliban already, not militarily, but by not giving in. One example is the Kabul-based news channel, Tolo TV. If you look at it today, Tolo TV went back live on air, you know, normally. Their entire broadcast was all female anchors all day. They had female journalists going out on the street to report, you know, and you would see them reporting and right next to them would be Taliban. So I think now, you know, people are taking preemptive measures, you know, they knew that if they didn't do it now, and they didn't set a precedent, for instance, in the, in, in the idea of having women on TV, um, they would never be able to do it later. And for instance, on Tolo, they had a female journalist directly interviewing a Taliban member. There's fear, but there's also people willing to sort of challenge things right away, to, to not give in, to say that, you know, if we don't do this now, we'll never get the chance later. So let's make sure that we set it up and we put it in place as soon as we possibly can. But I think what's very important is to set that momentum. A top Taliban leader, Abdul Ghani Baradar, arrived in Kandahar on the night of August 17th from Doha, potentially signaling that a deal is close at hand. In Kabul, talks are reportedly ongoing between the Taliban and several Afghan politicians, including former President Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, who once headed the country's negotiating council. Can the Taliban succeed in forming an inclusive government in Afghanistan like they're promising? Only time will tell. Here's Ali Latifi again. I think they're very much on their best behavior and they're trying to put their best foot forward. So now it's very important to monitor that and make sure that their actions align with their words. Thanks this week to Ali Latifi and Roya, who spoke to us from Kabul, and to Jasmine Bhatia, who spoke to us from Canada. This episode was produced by Suhail Akram and Arthur Edison, with assistance from Gully Burroughs. I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review.